Well, good morning, everyone. Man, that was, that was awake and alert. Good morning. Good morning. My name is Matt, and I'm the worship pastor at Village Church. Um, Bartlett Campus is where you normally find me, but I get the opportunity to work alongside of Shannon uh, regularly in planning services here, and occasionally I have the opportunity and privilege to, uh, to come here and, and do music with you all, and every once in a while, I get to open the Word with you. And uh, this morning is one of those opportunities, and I'm thrilled about it. So if you have been with us over the last few weeks, you know that we're in a series, as has been mentioned, called Explore God. And um, this series is, is designed to, basically you're asking seven questions. We're asking seven questions that all of us have asked at one time or another, most likely at least. They're, they're big questions, the high, you know, um, the high questions about God, about my existence, what's my purpose, these kind of questions. And so this morning is actually the final sermon in this series. And the final question we're going to be asking is, can I know God personally? So that's what we're going to be looking at this morning, the question of, can I know God personally? Uh, but before we dive into our text this morning, I just want to ask, have any of you guys ever had a, a celebrity type of hero, like a specific celebrity that you've looked up to or just kind of held in high regard in your mind? Oh, yeah. yeah? At least one person has. No, I've seen a lot of heads nod. I know that I've had them, and, and in my life, it's kind of shifted through the years. So when I was a kid... I don't know how, if you grew up anywhere within, I don't know, 5,000 miles of Chicago, you watched what the Bulls were doing in the 90s, you could not help but be captivated by that. And of course, there was one player in particular that all of us obsessed over, Michael Jordan. No, B.J. Armstrong. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> Michael Jordan, for sure, right? So, um, so when I was a young kid, I grew up and I just, I got so into Michael Jordan. Every opportunity I had at school to give a speech, I'd be researching Michael Jordan and giving a speech about him. It was like nonstop. I, was, I could tell you about his kids. I could tell you about his wife, where they lived, his upbringing, when he got cut from the team, what that did to him. Like I knew a lot about him, um, but I didn't ex- actually know him personally. So then you get into my high school years, and I started being more serious about my faith, and some friends introduced me to a guy by the name of C.S. Lewis, and I started reading his books, and I was really drawn into that and captivated by just, just seeing the heart of the guy, the way that he was you know, communicating the truths that he's experiencing. I could get a little bit into his psyche, kind of see a bit of how his mind processes. And, and I, I got to know more about him too on that level. But again, I, I never met the man personally. Now we'll fast forward a little bit later. This was a little more embarrassing for me. Um, and you'll, you'll hear why as I tell you. But um, Phil Wickham is a recording artist. He's a worship leader. In fact, we did one of his songs this morning. And I... Um, I've always loved his music from his debut album. He's very creative. He was outside of the box, uh, really good stuff. And then lyrically, it was always scripturally saturated. It was just, I always found him to be really compelling. Well, a few years back, Amanda and I had an opportunity when we were in Edmonton to open up for Phil Wickham. And I was like, oh, this is going to be great. And uh, so we opened, and then we came off the stage, and literally, like, I stepped down, and he's standing right there in front of me, and I was like, and I was like, what is going on with me? Like, it's like I had butterflies talking to a man as a person, a regular man. And I was like, uh, Mr. Wickham, Phil, um, uh, I just want to let you know your music has been such an encouragement to me. Like, I love your music. It's so good. I'm like, I'm gushing like a little teenage girl. I don't know what's going on here. But here I am, my chance to meet like someone who has ministered to me deeply. And in my mind, I thought, this is going to be great. I'm going to meet this guy and, and, uh, and it's, he's going to be, you know, 
We're going to become buddies, whatever it might be. I don't know what I had in my mind. But we said this as I'm like gushing about how much his music has meant to me and how it's encouraged me in the Lord. And he, as graciously as possible, is like, oh, bro, I'm so encouraged. Thanks for that. It was kind of like, this weirdo is creeping me out. He needs to get out, out of my way. So fast forward to the next day. He finishes the night's over. We're at the airport at like 4 a.m. to catch our flight back to Nashville. Lo and behold... I look across there and I see someone reading a book, face literally in the book like this, but I recognize that hair. I was like, that's Phil Wickham. So I was like, I said to my wife, I said to Amanda, I'm going to go talk to him again. And she goes, I wouldn't. I think I'd just leave it like you had it yesterday. I was like, no, no, no. See, what my wife didn't know is I was one really great conversation away from becoming Phil Wickham's best friend. So I go over to him in the airport. He's sitting there, and I see his manager there. He kind of sees me coming and does a little smirk, like, oh, I know what's coming here. And he's got his book in his face, and I go, Mr. Wickham. Yeah. I mean, again, it's like 4 a.m. He's literally wiping the sleepers out of his eyes as he moves from his book to look to me. Yeah. I was like, um, just want to tell you, I really enjoyed your set last night. I know I talked to you before and I told you your music ministered to me, but now I want to tell you that you're set. And I'm like, diarrhea of the mouth. I couldn't stop talking. I'm like, stop talking. So I walked back to Amanda. I was like, yep, you were right. Shouldn't have done that. So I realized in this process, like he was a celebrity hero. And, and genuinely, you guys, I, I've said to Amanda many times, they're just regular people. And here I was totally befuddled, for lack of a better word. Didn't know what to say. Because here's a guy who's ministered to me, and in my mind, he's impacted my life so personally, but I have no personal relationship with the guy. So why would he be responding to me in any way that I would think would be compelling? And I kind of had a thought about, in this day and age with social media, with everything that's out there, we can feel like we have personal connections with complete strangers over and over again. And sometimes with these celebrity preachers and stuff like that, They can have a deep, profound personal impact on our lives, so we feel personally connected to them, but they have no idea we're even engaging with their content, so we don't mean anything to them. So it's really interesting how that can happen, and I started thinking about, that's how sometimes we can approach God in this light. We can view God as, as something to be studied, as something to be, you know, understood an object that we want to know, but... There's no real personal connection there. In fact, there are worldviews that are formed from that. Deism is one where you've heard it described probably at times as a clockmaker God. Basically, there's a higher power, but he's completely impersonal. He created everything, and for the sake of the greatest reality TV show ever, he just watches his creation unfold as it does. That's kind of the perspective of deism. And there are all these other worldviews out there that have differing views of God. Major world religions, you've got with agnosticism, it's basically whatever's out there is unknowable. I don't know, you don't know, we can't know. Um, then you have um, you know, other worldviews. You have Islam, and, and I would say Judaism in the same boat. They would look at, at God solely as in heaven for the most part, right? Now we know with the Jewish people, there, there are traditions that have God placed among the people in specific places like the tabernacle or like the temple. But by and large, um, they view God as somewhere up there. So when it comes to us as Christians, in fact, let me just ask, just, just do this for me. It's a little exercise, get you moving a little bit, actually just moving one hand. Use your finger and point to where you would say God is. Seriously, I'm not joking. Let's do that. Point to where you think God is. So we see people pointing everywhere, pointing up, pointing in the hearts. There are a lot of right answers to this. There really are. I mean, 
because we serve a Trinitarian God, there are a lot of answers to where God actually is. There's truth to saying he's here. There's truth to saying he's there. There's truth to saying he's around us. So it's really interesting because when you look at what Christianity is, it's the only religion, though, where you have a completely transcendent God who is up there, out there, and indwelling us. You have pantheism, which is completely different. That's not that there's a separate entity. That's, that's that God is everything. Everything collectively makes up this consciousness, this God. But that's very different from what we believe about a distinct God who is there and here and around. It's really interesting when you think about that. So now at this point, I want to look together then, since we're going to be trying to tackle the question, can I know God personally? Let's see what his word reveals to us about whether or not we can know him personally. If you will, turn with me to Romans 8. We're going to be starting at verse 14. If you don't have your Bibles, you can look on the screens. It'll be there as well. And it says, the Apostle Paul writes, it says, For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Uh, It should be apparent as we look at this text together whether or not we can know God personally. And so let's look at the context then. Paul's writing this letter. The book of Romans is a letter to the church in Rome. So let's look at the broader context. What is his purpose in writing the book of Romans? Well, he actually answers that in his introductory statements um, in chapter 1, verse 5. To bring about obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations, that his is Jesus, to make much of the name of Jesus, to bring about obedience of faith for the sake of his name among all the nations. And that's the purpose and why he's writing this letter to the churches for that, to that end. That's the goal in what he's writing. But then what is he actually writing for? Well, well, what we find as you look throughout the book of Romans, there's really two things that he's showing us. And what it does, he, he's writing the book, and you can jump to the next slide. It says, um, he's revealing, it reveals the great sinfulness of people and the greater grace of God to redeem his people through Jesus. And that's what we see throughout the book of Romans, the great sinfulness of all people. And yet the greater grace, as great as our sin might be, his grace is so much greater, infinitely greater to redeem his people through Jesus. So now in this immediate context, we're in chapter eight. Well, in in the previous chapter, Paul just went to great lengths to talk about the wickedness that dwells in his own heart. He calls himself a wretched man. And he says, who will save me from this body of death? What I want to do, I do not do, but that which I hate, I do. So he's finding these things at war within himself. Even Paul, the man penning this through the Holy Spirit, he's penning this and he is revealing the own depths of his sin and his depravity. So then you go into chapter eight, which is where we are now. Despite all that Paul wrote about his own wickedness, he says, There is therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that's where he lands. He lands in that place, and that's where we're dwelling right now, talking about life in the Spirit, the life that we have in Christ despite our sinfulness. So that's what he's going on to here. And and now, he's again, life in the Spirit is where we're landing in chapter 8. So now let's go back then to um, our text. This will lead us to our first point that I think Paul's trying to make here. And it's important for us to understand whether or not we can have a personal relationship 
with God is contingent on who we were, who we are, both those things. So who we were, let's start there first, and we'll look at verse 15, actually. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. So this is what we did not receive with no screens. We did not receive, there we go, the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. So spirit of slavery, this, there's, there's two ways to look at the spirit of slavery. One is physical. And when you look back at the history of the Israelites, they would be very familiar with being in bondage to other people. You can see their Egyptian slavery when they were slaves under Pharaoh. You can see there was Babylonian captivity. There are these other places throughout their history where they were exiled and sent out and subservient to other peoples. They would know very much what the physical slavery is. But here in this context, he says spirit of slavery. It's a, it's a different thing. And so there's a spiritual bondage that he's talking about. And this doesn't just impact Israel. All people, all of us, deal with a spiritual slavery. Whether we know it or not, whether we admit it or not, we have to deal with the spirit of slavery that we have. You know, and there are some views, like I mentioned with other religions, you look at the Israelites in particular, their view of God is, is by and large almost exclusively transcendent. They're going to emphasize his transcendence in such a way that, um, that you know, they, they wouldn't feel like they can approach him. And the reason for that is, because quite frankly, they can't. He's a holy God. Who can approach his holiness? In fact, you can look. I mean, there were a few people that had a partial revelation of God along the way, like Abraham. The covenant was established with Abraham, you know, and Adam walked with God. We see that. Moses, I mean, he wrote the first five books of the scriptures, right? The, first, the Pentateuch, that's him. And you see in the burning bush when he received the Ten Commandments. In fact, in Exodus 33, it says that Moses talked with God like a friend. That's really intimate language, right? But by and large, the people of Israel didn't have that connection with the Lord. As a matter of fact, in the very same chapter, Exodus 33, God says that he cannot dwell among the people or he will consume them. And even to Moses, he says, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see me and live. So you hear this language, you talk to God like you would talk to a friend, and yet you see this caveat in there, it's like, well, what does that mean? What does that mean? How can you talk to God like talking to a friend, but you can't see me face to face? There's obviously not total intimacy that could have happened in that context. And then you look at us. We have a spirit of slavery as far as our connection with God, whether you're, I mean, prior to Christ, there is total bondage to sin. We see that in the scriptures that we are slaves to our sin. And when you see that kind of thing, we realize, man, we are in bondage. And that's what he's saying, you did not receive, because he's writing to a group of people who have placed their faith in Jesus. You did not receive the spirit of slavery to what? To fall back into fear. Falling back into fear. And that's the consequence. When you're you're governed as a slave, when you're functioning as a slave, you have all these fears. Now, this is not the same as what we see in the scriptures where it describes Job and others as a God-fearing man. That's a praiseworthy thing. That's talking about reverential, fearing the Lord, having a reverence, for the Lord, this is talking about a sinful fear, a fear that is, is viewing him in the wrong light, fear of a harsh master ruling over us, fear of condemnation, fear that we might not be good enough to be approved by a holy God. And it's the fear that we had before when we were slaves to sin. And again, he's writing to a group of people who've placed their trust in Jesus. That's why he can say, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. So that describes who we were. We were people enslaved to our sin. We were uh, driven by fear. We were falling back into fear. 
But now who are we? And that leads us to the next point. And also, we're going to actually jump back from 15 to verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Now you can see between those two verses, there are two different things that Paul is saying you're led by. You're either led by a spirit of darkness or you're led by a spirit of light. There's no mixing between the two. You're led by one or you're led by the other. And the spirit of darkness is the spirit of slavery. It's, that's what we see in, in the culture around us. In secularism, with agnosticism, atheism, in these contexts, other religions, it's, it's under a spirit of darkness. There may be aspects of it that seem like truth. There may be aspects of what these other religions are saying that, that are true. But it's just similar to what the enemy said in the garden when the serpent tempted Eve. It was just a manipulation of the truth which completely changed everything, right? And that's the same with other religions. They might have a grasp of God's holiness and his perfection, but they miss certain attributes. There's a slight twisting and a slight perversion of who God has revealed himself to be. So it's a spirit of darkness that's over them in that context. And then the other one is the spirit of God, which is the spirit of light. And that's being led by the Holy Spirit. That's what he just said. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. So then this is a place where I'd like to pause for a moment and just do a little exercise with us. Um, Mainly Pilates based. No, I'm just kidding. A mental exercise, all right? So how do I know which spirit is leading me? All right, that's a question that we need to be asking ourselves genuinely and regularly taking check. Where's my heart? So a few questions that we can look at. What spirit am I being led by? Which spirit? Are my values being brought more into alignment with the word of God or with the culture around me? I recognize that very often these two values don't line up. There are some situations, but by and large, the surrounding culture and what God's word calls us to are going to be different things. So check that. Are my values being brought more into alignment with the word of God or with the culture around me? How about this? Am I trying to hide my sins to save face or willingly confessing my sins and receiving correction? That's a tough one. As difficult as it can be, though, to open up and confess our sins before other people and ask them to be in prayer for us, to hold us accountable, as difficult as that can be, if I value my soul, I should desire to be killing the sin that's in my heart, even if it means bringing other people into my mess. Or how about this question? How do I view God and how do I believe God views me? Because my view of God and my belief in how God views me, it should cause me to draw nearer to him instead of causing me to pull away from him. And what I mean by that is if I have an accurate view of who God is according to his word, when I have sin, instead of me feeling like I can't approach him, I should be willing to confess with my mouth What's going on? If I feel like, man, God's too holy, I've screwed up so far, I'm beyond his grace, then I don't understand who God is. And that's, that spirit that's leading me into those things is not leading me into truth. It's leading me into falsehood. It's leading me into mis, um, it's leading me into false assumptions about who God is and how he views me in light of Jesus. So it's very important that we have a right understanding of who God is, how we view him, and how he views us. And then the last one, do I care? Do I care which spirit is leading me? Now, I know this might sound trite, but honestly, if you care, if you're like, man, I don't know which spirit's leading me, but I really want to be led by the spirit of God. If you have a desire to be led by the spirit of God, let me tell you, brothers and sisters, that's a good indication that the Holy Spirit is leading you into that. 
If you're apathetic, if you don't care, if you look at this and you say, I don't care about asking those questions, that may be a different indication. That may be time to look into your heart and say, okay, Lord, what's really going on? But if you're wondering, man, I I want to be led by the Spirit, if that desire is in you, that's a really good indicator that the Spirit is leading you in that. So let's jump back then to the text. And we're going to look again at verse 14. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. You know, in our culture, we like to hear people say, or people like to say often, we are all God's children, right? Every single person is God's children, is God's child. But the Bible paints a very different picture. We see here that all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. That's not all who have ever been created by God. Not every single person who's been created is a child of God. Not every person is. And I know our culture likes to say, we're all children of God. No, we're we're not. Biblically speaking, from God's revealed word to mankind, we are not all children of God. Just being made in God's image does not make us automatically a child of God. It's being led by the Spirit of God that makes us children of God. Another way that we've misinterpreted this passage, I know I have been guilty of this many times, we like to look at this and say, for all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Okay, so I've got to be doing better. I've got, to, I've got to do this, do that. I feel like I've got to be doing the right things. I've got to be living rightly or I'm not a son of God. And uh, there's an element of that that's true. We should be being transformed. But this is a passive statement. Do you understand? For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. Us being led by the Spirit of God is not us mustering up the courage to pursue him. It's him drawing us. It's him leading us. Now, we need to be disciplined. We need to be persistent to pursue him in response, but it's only in response. It's not before. So it's, we are passively led by the Spirit. You know, it's interesting because I can think about my boys, right? I've got two young boys, Micah and Calvin, and how do they know that they're my sons? They know they're my sons because they try so hard to be good sons, I think you can attest some of you have seen them interact. They don't always try so hard to be good sons. They're not my sons because of anything that they're doing. And they don't know that they're my sons because of anything that they're doing. They're my sons and they know they're my sons based on how I lead them as their dad. They know I'm their dad because I affirmed them that I'm their dad. I discipline and correct them as their dad. I encourage them as their dad. They see the way I lead them. I lead these young boys in to grow, grow up into the Lord, they see me leading them and that's how they know that I'm their dad. They don't know it intrinsically. If I weren't in their life, they'd have no idea I was their dad. But because of how I lead them, they know that I'm their dad. And the same is true for us who are in Christ. Because of how the Spirit is leading us, we can affirm in our hearts that we are being led by God, that we are his children. There's an interesting quote from Robert Haldane, and he says, um, the law treats men as mercenaries and says, do and live. The gospel treats them as children and says, live and do. And I think that's a really good, helpful way to view this, do and live versus live and do, right? Essentially, the idea being, when we look at the law, when we look at um, other worldviews, I gotta be good enough for God. I gotta be good enough to get into his good graces. So I've gotta do these things right and then I can live with God forever. But the gospel flips that on its head. Instead, it says, you have life. 
You have life with God now because you have life in Jesus. Go and do. Go and change the way you live because I'm transforming you internally. I'm moving your affections in your heart. I'm stirring you up to do the things that I have called you to do. And to me, that's a really freeing reality. I don't know, to know that, that my, my standing before God as a son of God is not rooted in me. It's rooted in his call on my life. And yes, I need to be obedient in my response, but him calling me makes me realize that if he's called me and he is faithful, then my faithfulness to him is in response to his faithfulness to me. And I don't have to earn his favor. I don't have to earn his goodness. Jesus has done that. So let's go on then. We'll jump back into verse 15 again. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. Um, as I said, it's, it's in, he's contrasting here the spirit of slavery now with the spirit of adoption as sons. And it's interesting, in Rome in that time, they had a law in place that you could have one of your slaves become an adopted child and then they would literally, they would be adopted. It's just like we have adoption today where when, when a child is adopted into your household, they get your name, they get, you know, your whatever, everything you bring just as if they were born into your family. An adopted child has the same exact rights and privileges as a natural born child. And that's an incredible gift when you think about us standing before the Lord. We have a spirit of adoption as sons and that adoption has been purchased through Jesus. And so just as Jesus is able to cry, Abba, Father, to God, we, because of what Jesus has done, have that same privilege, have that same opportunity to cry out, Abba, Father, that spirit of adoption as sons. And it's interesting, that word cry is kradzo. And and kradzo, it means literally speak in a loud voice, cry aloud. It doesn't mean simply we can state his name. We can cry out to him. You know, I think about this when I come home from work. Uh, most often, Calvin, because Mike is usually busy with something else, Calvin will say, Daddy! It just warms my heart. He cries out, Daddy, because I'm home, and he's excited to see me. He comes and gives me a big hug. Every once in a while, Micah will do it too. But, um, but when they cry out, Daddy. But even other times, Micah's more inclined to say, Daddy, come see what I've done. And sometimes, Daddy, I did something. But they can cry out if they're in time of help, if they need a time of help, if they're in time of need, whatever it may be. And I love hearing my boys cry out, Daddy. I love it. Nothing makes me happier than, than hearing them cry out to me and wanting me, coming, coming to me asking for my help, coming to me because they're proud of something that they've done. It's incredible to be called Daddy. And if I love it when my kids do that, how much more our perfect Heavenly Father loves it when we cry aloud to Him. And I want to mention, too, that word Abba. It's Aramaic. And, and we look at Father, we feel like Father is much more... Um, formal almost, right? Most of us, by and large, we don't refer to our dads as father. It's usually dad or pops, I don't know, whatever it might be, something, something more, I don't know if anyone calls their dad pops, but maybe, um, but whatever it may be, it's not usually this formalized, yes, father. We're like, dad, daddy, that's what this is. This, this terminology that is being used is much more endearing. It's much more personal than just, I'm filling out a form, who's the father, this guy. It's no, dad, daddy. We can cry to him and he yearns for us to cry out to him. He wants for us to cry to him and he is anxious and quick to respond. He's ready to respond. He's listening and waiting for us to cry out to him. And then we'll go on then 
In verse 16, the Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And again, as I mentioned before, we're not hoping for this status before the Lord in and of ourselves. We will never get to heaven by baselessly hoping that one day we'll make it. We hope on a real hope that is Christ. Our standing before God is good because the Spirit, the Holy Spirit himself, bears witness with our spirit. We know it in our hearts that we are children of God. That's a great gift from the Lord to give us that, and it's incredibly freeing. The Spirit is your witness today and on that future day to come when we stand before the Lord. It's not our works. It's the Spirit. And to me, it brings great comfort to know that. I want to just, we can jump to the next slide here. This is a, uh, just a little chart that I threw together of who we were and who we are, right? We looked at who we were as a first point, and now we're looking at who we are. But look at the difference. Look at the difference. We were slaves to sin, and because of Jesus, we are freed from sin. We were children of wrath. Now we are children of God. We were dead in our sin, and now we're alive in Christ. We were living without hope, and now we're living with an eternal hope. We were far from God, now we are near to God. We were enemies of God, and now we are heirs of God. That dividing line between the two, the thing that takes us from who we were to now who we are, that dividing line is Jesus. It's Christ alone. He's the one that takes us from who we were. All those things, they define each and every one of us prior to Christ. Now, simply because of the grace of God revealed through Jesus Christ, we can be all these other things. What an incredible gift that is. What an incredible comfort that is. So looking at that then, what does this all mean for us in our lives? What does it actually mean? Well, that leads us then to verse 17. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. So what happens here is the natural progression. If we are children, then we are automatically heirs. So it's the natural progression here. We went from slaves. This is the unnatural part. We went from slaves to children. That's the part that's unnatural. But once you're children, automatically you become an heir. That's how it was always throughout history. If you're a child, you are an heir. And so what are we heirs of? We're heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. And when it says heirs of God, I think that can be understood in two ways. We are God's heirs, right? Just as Jesus is an heir of God. But we also are heirs of God as in we get God. We receive God. We receive an intimate father-son, daddy-son, daddy-daughter relationship with God. That's what we are heirs of. We get to receive that. And then to say that we are fellow heirs with Christ, that takes us. Here's Jesus, and it moves us to be in that same type of relationship with Jesus. Now, don't hear me and say we're elevated to become God. We're not at all. But as far as a standing before a holy and righteous God, we have the same exact standing as Jesus because he took our sin upon the cross. He paid the penalty that our sins deserved, and now we have his righteousness, his goodness, his perfection placed upon us. So when God looks at our lives, he no longer sees that broken, sinful mess. He sees the righteousness of his son, Jesus. And it's because of that that we have a right standing now. We are fellow heirs 
with Christ, who is our brother before a holy God. It's incredible when you think of what Jesus has done for us. We get to have an intimate relationship with God because of Jesus. We get to have a daddy and child relationship without the taint of sin that we experience as earthly fathers and as earthly children. We have a perfect dad who loves us perfectly. As much as I love my boys, I know I fall short. I know that I don't always discipline them the right way. I know that I don't always, you know, lead them in the right thing. I want to, I desire to, but I know I'm falling and I know I make mistakes. And I've had to confess those things before them at times when I've, when I've made mistakes like that. But our God is not that way with us. He's perfect. And he loves us perfectly. Can you imagine what that is like? I mean, that's what we get to experience because of Jesus. And when you look throughout the scriptures, the relational illustrations that God uses to describe us, most often, as we see here, sons and daughters, we see bride to groom with with Jesus and his church, we see friend. These are different things that are all representative of some of the most intimate relationships we can have on this earth. And we get to have them with God himself. You know, one of the reasons why God instituted these things, he created the family, he created marriage, was so that we could get a better understanding of his love for and his relationship with us. So brothers and sisters, can I know God personally? Can you know God personally? The answer is absolutely yes. But it's only through Jesus. It's only through Jesus that we can know and relate to God as a personal father to us, as a personal dad to us. But we can And so we look to him to that end. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we we come before you with nothing of ourselves to offer. We come before you with nothing other than gratitude for what Christ has done to make us your sons. Thank you that we can cry out to you and you hear us just as a dad hears his son, even better than a dad hears his son. You listen, you respond, you care, you yearn for us to cry out to you because of what you have done to make that way for us. And Lord, I ask that each of our hearts here will be open to you in this time. If if any one of us, Lord, is not trusting in you or if there's even an area of our life where we're rejecting you or where we think we don't need you, I pray that you would forgive us of that, Lord. I pray that you would be stirring up each heart in this place to respond to you and to place our faith fully in Jesus. Thank you for taking us from who we were and making us who we are right now as we stand before you. We are children of God, heirs of God, alive in you, Jesus. I pray that we would walk in our identities in you as we seek to make much of you, Lord Jesus, and to bring glory to our Heavenly Father. We love you, Jesus, and it's in your name that we pray. Amen.